Welcome, my name is Adriek van Nieuwhuizen and I'm head of industry office at ITVA. Uh, welcome to this uh, industry talk, Assembling Reality. Um, it's part of our um, uh, program on editing at the festival. We show films, we have talks, and I'm uh, very proud to, uh, to have these uh, um, editors sitting here in front of you. Editors with a, um, a great oeuvre of, of work playing here in the festival, but um, they have worked all uh, on many, many films which you might have not seen or maybe you're going to see this week. And we have this uh, moderator here, Nicholas Rappold, and I give the floor to him to introduce the panelists. And of course there will be room for questions, but please, if you want to ask questions, wait for the microphone. I wish you a very uh, inspiring afternoon. Thank you so much, and thank all of you for coming. Um, I, I was very excited to have the opportunity to talk uh, with editors about editing because it's such an underappreciated uh, and, and overlooked process, despite in some ways being just as key as, as the role of a director or, of course, of a cinematographer um, in the making of the film, and, and just as fraught, you know, just as complicated when it comes to shaping the identity of a film and connecting with the audience. Uh, it's really at the center of, of filmmaking. Um, so I'm very happy to have these um, documentary e editors here to talk with us from a variety of different angles. Um, so I guess I'll just go one by one, and then we'll have presentations from each, and there'll be time at the end uh, for question and answer uh, with, with the audience. So definitely keep in the back of your mind as, as questions come to you during the presentations. Um, but uh, first, uh, we have uh, Per Kierkegaard and Claudio Hughes here. Uh, and uh, Claudio Hughes has worked on uh, Stranded and Family Affair. So that's, and <laughs> Per Kierkegaard has, has worked on Armadillo, which I just learned, I didn't quite realize, which is a, an extraordinary um, documentary you should seek out if you can, as, as all of the ones you're going to hear about. Um, so they'll, they'll be talking in the beginning um, about the dialogue between director and editor, and they'll be taking the form of a dialogue and discussing it. Uh, um, and we're also fortunate to have uh, Anne Fabini here uh, at the end uh, on the couch. And uh, she'll be talking about engaging with an audience uh, through editing, um, how the editorial decisions you make uh, on the level of you know, shot to shot, scene to scene, are actually able to add emotion um, or enhance emotion or underline emotion uh, in, the, in the crafting of a film. And uh, finally, uh, Sarah Colster. Uh, is here to talk about editing in a new arena for, for many of us. Uh, movies are already a fairly young art form compared to painting, but even younger than movies is uh, VR, um, virtual reality, and in some ways we don't, we're still developing the vocabulary we need uh, to talk about it uh, and to practice it. Uh, and that's a new, you know, exciting area of creation in itself. So uh, Sarah Colster will be talking about a VR project called Out of Sight uh, that she worked on. Um, and um, I, I realize I just neglected to mention uh, Anne's movie that she'll be talking about, which is Return to Homs, which many of you may have seen here at IDFA uh, previously, uh, a very uh, a wrenching <laughs> work uh, and very moving work. Um, so uh, without further ado, I've already talked too much, I feel. Um, uh, let's start with uh, Claudia Hughes and Per Kierkegaard uh, with their uh, presentation. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, we had uh, planned it like that the... The, the, the idea was that we were talking about uh, 
collaboration between editors and uh, directors. Um, and for us, it's uh, very much uh, important to have a very good dialogue with, with the directors. So that is why we are trying to have a dialogue in this session with you and Claudia. Um, uh, my latest work is uh, Shadow World, uh, premiered tomorrow, uh, one of the screens here at the uh, IFA, uh, directed by Johan Grimus Press, uh, Belgian director. It, it's a very, very strong document about the international arms deals uh, going around for the last 30 years in the Western world. It's a horrifying movie, uh, and I think it's very important. Um, this was the, 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 the process was like uh, Justin Barnes and Sina uh, Bjørnsson from Final Cut for Real uh, contacted me uh, one year ago and asked me if I would love to would like to, to work on this project. Uh, I saw a cut that uh, Johan and the crew had been working on for nearly two years. And that was uh, an amazing cut, but it was way too long. But that's the novel part of the process. So, so I said yes to it, and I have some uh, uh, quite interesting uh, talks with Johan and Jocelyn and Sina uh, about the, the film and the process and why it looked like it, 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 how it was, why it was as it was at that moment I came on board. Um, then uh, we started working on it and uh, the idea was that, that I should edit a little bit in Brussels and then at uh, my home base in Copenhagen. Um, uh, very, very soon in the process, working with Johan, I found out that this is the guy that comes from another, another community. Uh, he's definitely not a normal filmmaker. He's an artist, and he, as an artist, he's, he's, he's not used to have dialogue. And that was really a challenge in that process. And, and, and on the other side, the film is based on a book named Shadow World by uh, author Andrew Feinstein, and it's about uh, the last 40 years of uh, arms deals and corruption going on in the Western world. Um, so there I was me sitting between those very, very strong persons. Uh, Johan on the other side as director, Andrew Feinstein on the other side of the earth trying to protect his book, and the two very strong creative producers, Justin Barnes and Sidney, and I was sitting there in the middle of the frame. And, and that was very, very difficult for me to, to, to find my way. But, but then uh, somehow I, I finally found out that it was very important for me to, to try to get it to work because I found out that communication had been not so good before I came on board of the process. So I thought it was very important for me to, to try to, to help the process, to have started up, start up a kind of dialogue between uh, the different parts, the different opinions about how to film. Uh, because Feinstein's book is a very much about figures and our film is a lot about persons having feelings about what's going on. So that was kind of difficult to merge those two characters together in one film. But <laughs> you will see tomorrow if you go to the premiere what ended up. Um, but in there, we have this dialogue. And I found myself as a moderator 
in that situation, trying to get the best out of this and try to keep the people working on the same project. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic movie, by the way. Um, and uh, it's very interesting, this, this thing between the, the journalistic uh, figures, uh, objective uh, state of, of, of the politics, and the more intuitive and emotional side, which was brought by the director, anyway. And uh, so that that position between the two is is really interesting. But for me, by, uh, when I hear you talking, I, I feel that uh, I often find myself in the middle of things too. But uh, on one side, I feel there's the film. On the other side, all the persons that are trying to, mm, I mean, not the film, the material, because there's no film yet, um, <laughs> what we have there to build something, right? What was filmed. And on the other side, there are all these people around, director, producer, myself, uh, even sometimes, uh, girlfriend or boyfriend of the director or <laughs> some assistant that arrives and says something in the wrong moment. Or so all these people that are uh, in a good way trying to make something out of this sort of animal. I, I really feel this, the material is like a, like a, a beast some animal that we don't understand and we have to get close and we have to make a film out of it. And there are all these voices around. So it's, it's really not simple. <laughs> but uh, um, we have to get as close as possible to this thing, to, to the material. And not only understand their visions, Yes, not only understand the, the, the visions, the ideas, the objectives that uh, the director uh, might have, uh, also the producer, if he's hopefully a good artistic producer, because we need that a lot. Uh, like a, a third person, apart from us and the director, mm. yes, yeah. to, to, to get some, some ping pong going on to, to advance. Um, I was saying that uh, I lost my, my ideas. Vision and material. Yes, because there is, there is this um, very uh, interesting thing in the process is that at the beginning um, we arrive and the director and the producer, they, they already have done this path, which was pitching, raising funds, and all that, that's based into defending an idea of the film and uh, pretending that everything is very clear. We know where we're going. We know what we want. <laughs> uh, and when you find yourself in the editing room, it's, it's about the opposite. It's about being humble enough to ask yourselves yourself in, in, a, in, a, in a position of fragility in which you are able to receive from the material indications about 
where to go. And of course, we based our work in <coughs> the idea of the film, and the intentions and the vision of the, of the director. But we have to be able to receive from this animal there some something, something that if we are able to do it, it will be a film, a good film. If not, it will be imposing some idea and it will be your code or just uh, good enough, uh, a film that works. But I don't think we get to this level of something strong if we don't, uh, if we are unable to, to listen to what, what we have there, to the material. Uh, I have experience from not so long ago that I worked on a process where it was very much based on a very light vision of what it could be without getting very concrete. It was not allowed really to go into the material and let the material do the work, find its way in the film, uh, to be a part of the film. So it was a not a good process. So I had to stop that film to work on it because I, I couldn't be part of it. I really like to be in a project where it's a kind of open investigation together with the director. That's very important, to have the dialogue and the in investigation together through the material, through the vision, build it up to a whole film. Yeah, that's fundamental. We have to do it together, right? And, and make mistakes together and try things and not be sure of things beforehand because mm. that's uh, uh, death. It's, it's not making things alive and, and bringing out something. Because it's, I, I often have the feeling that there is a sort of um, film hidden behind. And we have to, to make it appear. So it's, it's, it's about, um, you know, like these um, middle-aged guys uh, making gold out of uh, stones. But it's really that. It, that's creation. It's um, being um, patient also and search for a little further and not coming with ideas and just feeling that, okay, why isn't this working? It should be easy. The shooting was over, so the film is almost there. But it's not at all like that. Yeah, yeah, and it, um, it takes me a little bit further on because I think when you, you start up working, watching the footage together with the director, uh, in this, what should say, the last five, six years, it's the amount of footage is raised <coughs> to unbelievable many hours. It's, it's one of the latest projects was 600 hours, and I was forced to see them. And it was so crazy because I was sitting for four months and it was like, I was tired, I gave up. Because I didn't have the energy to, to continue the project. Uh, so please, if there's any editors here, please make the director think about having a first select. It's not the same as saying, we will never look at the rest of the footage. But it's so important to concentrate on what the first vision, impression, of the footage is through the eyes of the director. 
that's really important for me. Yeah, it's funny because uh, for me, until a few years ago, until it became this absurd amount of hours, uh, I was against this selection. I didn't want the director to make a selection because I wanted to see everything. I wanted to establish myself some relationship with the material. But now it's impossible, it's completely impossible. Um, and when, when you talk with the produ pro producer about how long, you know, how many weeks are we going to work together? Well, if you, if you just watch the material, it's half, half a year. year, and then you see. Then you can start. Then you have to find another. It's impossible. <laughs> and many times more and more now, uh, I don't know if it's your case, but uh, they, they come up with, with a rough cut because there are so many hours that in the selecting process they are also editing. Uh, so that's uh, dangerous. Mm. I don't like that very much, but it's necessary. It's nowadays mm. how we manage to, to work with these amounts of hours. Mm. But it's very difficult when you, when you have the scene that, that it's already too much edited, too edited, because you are cutting away possibilities. It's, it's too centered in some direction, but it's, you cannot start like that, because the scenes, like we were talking today, some scenes, you have no clue where, what's the direction until much later in the process. Yeah. And it's not because it has to go out of the editing process, those scenes. You have to put them apart, take them and, and put them <coughs> apart, and then look at some other important scenes in the material. Then it suddenly will get interesting or important for the film to put it in. Yeah, because we were talking about these scenes that are uh, difficult to be edited, that you it's a struggle, and and how how you can solve this thing, but it's uh, very often a sign that it's too soon to work with those, mm. because the the meaning of the scene is not clear, and uh, even those scenes that seem obviously wrong, they they very often come later in the process, and you think, oh, what is wrong with that scene that was so awful? And then it works, in, uh, because you find out what, what it means or how to work on it. And also when you're, when you're stuck in these scenes that don't work, uh, you have <coughs> to go back to the material, right? So forget about the cuts you're working on and go back to the rushes and watch again, because it's, it's from there that you find the solutions. It's, it's because, of course, we need to talk a lot and discuss a lot, but the, we shouldn't forget the material. No. It's, it's very good, of course, to have the talk about the vision and the, and the big picture, but it's also very good to, 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 be, to realize, to be concrete about what kind of footage do we have, what kind of material do we really have to tell that film. That that is somehow the vision of the director. But but I want to ask you a question. How do you start editing after watching 
I always find it very difficult to start. It never works. The first day is torture. I put two shots together, it's awful. <laughs> There's nothing, no feeling, no, it's... it's. And after, after watching the rushes and, and feeling that it's, wow, this is interesting, or you're even moved by some, some uh, parts of the shots, and you start working, and it's so frustrating because you're unable to to make something good. But it's part of it's part of getting closer to this thing. It's, it's not easy. The animal doesn't let you get close. That's easy, right? You have to work. Um, so I like to start working in the scenes that I felt something personal uh, with the rushes, with the material. And even if it's difficult, I know that I have some connection. I had some connection while I watched those rushes from that scene. And uh, so that's like my door to, to get into me. But it's, it's unrelated to the meaning of the film or the main line or the main character or the vision of the director, it's really a private thing for me to get close. And then I go little by little to more difficult stuff, or the scenes I don't feel much, but I cannot start with those because then I will feel really far from yeah, I think it's, it's it's important to 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 attack the beach, beach going after the scenes that you have an emotional feeling about. Uh, not because it's maybe the most important scenes that you're referring to, but but it, it you have to have make the, the, the make it work for yourself. Find your way way into the to the editing, but because those kind of scenes could somehow be. Uh, very good to talk about with the director because you have something that you involve yourself in in that scene, so that could be a very good talking point for having the dialogue on the rest of the process. Yes, because you, you have to, to feel something, you have to start having your uh, intuitions to, for this dialogue to be productive, otherwise you're just hearing and you have to position yourself somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you're also between the film and the director. That's where I feel I am, I am in this editing process. I'm between this material want to be a film and the director with his ideas, <coughs> intentions. So I have, to, I have to establish both relationships because I have to uh, translate those intentions uh, in, into this working process with, with the material. So I need some emotional uh, link with, with it. Yeah. I 
also think that that uh, just want to end the talk with uh, talking a little bit about the relationship to the producers because <coughs> for me on the the films that I've been working on the latest film together with Cine uh, and Jocelyn uh, two very powerful producers uh, it's, they have been so important for me in the in the in the creative talk about what the film really is about. So for me, it's, it's not only you and the footage, it's also, for me, it's like having a, if you have the, the circle, it's the film somehow, and if you put a triangle in, you have the director, then you have the producer and the editor, you can squeeze the triangle a little bit around because you have different time issues on the timeline in the film process, and you need the fucking producer to get in there and help you sometimes to convince maybe a director or have the, to solve the dialogue problem you have with the material or the director. Yeah, yeah the, the, the producer's role is, is so important, but it's, um, well, we, we have infinite kinds of directors and the same with producers. Mm. So we, the perfect match is never there or... <laughs> <laughs> But it's so nice when you have a, a, a good producer that, that, that knows where, when to open the mouth, mm. when to come, that's, that has really a, uh, an artistic view too. It, and, and, and that you feel that... Really add to the process. Yes. And, and that's also behind, that's supporting, that's wishing for the best film and not only thinking about deadlines. <coughs> well, thank you. Uh, I, I feel like we have a big guiding metaphor here, the beast. <laughs> That's going to stick with us. Um, all right, our, our, we'll uh, move on to the second presentation by Anne Fabini, uh, who's going to start with an introduction and then show a clip from Return to Hobbes yeah. and then talk a bit about it. So. Well, this dialogue was so nice that I, I'm a little bit disappointed that I didn't bring a friend to, <laughs> to also have a dialogue. <laughs> but I will take you all as my friends. And uh, yeah, uh, so when I was asked to participate here in this uh, talk, I uh, was thinking in the beginning of, oh, but then it's in English, and do I want to, to give a talk in English? Because usually I prefer to speak to speak about my profession in German because it's the language that I mostly use when I'm working. But then I, as a second thought, it came to me that I said, oh, now it's a great opportunity to, to speak in English because there's such a beautiful word in English connected to cinema, to film, and it's the word, the movie, that we don't have it in, in, in German and I don't know if it exists in any other language, but the movie, it's so fit for what we work on. Of course, the, the word, the movies, uh, originates probably in the early times of cinema, when uh, the audience was uh, familiar to painting, sculpture, graphic art, whatever, but they never had seen movement in the pictures. So it was the moving images, the movies. And uh, I'm sure all of you remember this urban legend of uh, the first uh, or one of the early screenings of the, of the train arriving at the station. A shot, a single shot 
unedited, not edited, not cut, um, of a train by the Lumiere brothers arriving at the station. And uh, the camera is not even moving, but you have the train at a distance, and then the train comes straight towards uh, the audience. And the legend says that the people reacted very strongly. They, they left the, the, the room, they were shouting, screaming, running in panic. <laughs> so this is what the movies did to the people in the beginning of cinema. So I can ask you, do the movies do it still today to you? Well, to me, in a way, they did it. I remember this when I was sitting in a, in a movie theater watching Gravity 3D and suddenly I realized that I was ducking in my seat to protect myself <laughs> and I really enjoyed it and it happened also probably in Interstellar or it sometimes happens to me and I think why, why does this happen to me? I mean I, I work with moving, uh, moving images every single day so how come that I react so strongly? Well, I think that it's not only the physical movement in the images that gives the reaction, but more than that, it's our emotional response. It's our emotional response to the moving images, which is very strong and which, is, which has always been there. Emotion and Film is connected very much. Probably, I think, it can be because the, uh, the experience of sitting through, through a movie is similar to dreaming. It's also the fact that editing works. It's also connected to our very human experience of dreaming at night because jumping around in time and in space only happens in our dreams. We don't experience it in the physical world, but we experience it in our imaginary world at night. So I really like, um, I really like uh, to, to think uh, about uh, movies as, uh, as dreams, because uh, the best movies are those that touch you so deeply and that your reaction or your response is so strong that it is um, comparable to a dream that or it, it's a nightmare and you wake up and you're still feeling unsettled for the rest of, for the whole next day or if it's a good movie it can make you so feel so happy. So um, this is like uh, what a good movie should be like, like a good dream or a beautiful dream that we have this uh, strong response to. Well, now, as you said, the beast, <laughs> the footage often gives you a feeling of boredom also. If it's 600 hours, I perfectly understand that you, as an editor, sometimes you sit there and you watch through this footage and uh, sometimes it's really touching and it happens two or three times in your whole career that you burst into tears because you're so moved or sometimes you, you laugh and 
you start to love the people that you only know from the screen uh, because you empathize with them. You build a relationship with this, uh, with this uh, uncontrolled footage, but still, watching it uncut can be very boring. So let's get back again to the other times of cinema. And remember the person called Lev Kuleshov, who did this experiment that I'm sure you all remember of a shot of an actor with a quite neutral expression on his face and then he cut to a, 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 to a, a, a little girl in a coffin uh, and again the expressionless face of the actor. The result of this montage is sadness. And then he does it with, uh, with, uh, with uh, a, 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 some food, a plate of food, and the, the result is, um, is hunger. And again, when he replaces the second shot uh, with, um, with a woman, then it can be desire. So what Kuleshov um, proved to us through this experiment is that emotion, in a way, is added in the editing. Emotion comes from, from juxtaposing images. And this makes the response in the viewer even stronger than if it's just an uncut shot. So, um, of course, now when we sit there in front of our heaps of footage and we don't know where to start when we, when we want to, to begin um, with our work or we, we, sometimes we are clueless, um, the, the thing that helps me most is that I, I feel like I'm so lonely in my editing room. And I want to prepare this film for a huge audience to love it. So thousands of people should love the film, but I'm, I'm just the only one for the time that I'm sitting there. And I have the director, and I have the producers, and I have maybe some test screenings now and then, but it's never, in a, never the same as a huge audience. So what helps me in those moments is to think that, okay, but the basic thing is, I am human, they are human. So <laughs> we will all react to the same things. If I uh, feel touched or moved by things that uh, come up in the editing or that are intrinsic to the footage, then they will also be touched and moved. It's a lot about emotion, how you, you get to your, to, your, to your audience. And uh, it's the work of the editor also to identify those uh, moments of, of, of great intensity and <coughs> authenticity and uh, feeling, um, because it's not always a given that, that uh, the others have already realized that these are the great scenes. So I would like to, to present now a clip from, from Return to Homes, which uh, opened it about three years ago. It, um, it's a, a clip which is uh, from one hour into the film. 
And uh, I was really, this, it, it contains the scenes that really draw me to uh, the, the footy, to the film and um, when I saw those clips unedited from the footage, I said, yes, I want to work on this film. So let's uh, screen the clips.
contain this kind of, uh, of scenes or of, of, of footage that I, I was not expecting simply for people to, to, to be tired and depressed. <laughs> we, we 
we assume that they are fighting all the time and that they are fighting for their high ideals and uh, they are full of energy and uh, combat spirit, but in fact they are not. And this uh, protagonist at the moment of the shooting, he was 18 years old. So I, 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 I really, it, it really broke my heart when I watched the footage. So I, I thought this is the, the, the treasure from, from the footage. I definitely want to build this into the main culmination of the film. Okay. <laughs> it was uh, my big conviction today, I would say, oh, maybe a little bit daring because <laughs> nothing is going on in these scenes. And in fact, this is what happened. I mean, we had lots of rough cut screenings and people were telling us, yeah, but it's boring and it's too long and come on, do you really need to stay that long on this face and uh, to linger that long on this emotion? But um, I, I kept trying, we kept trying, and we were convinced that we needed to have it uh, at that moment in the film. And uh, now, a few years after we finished working on the scene, I realized what was like the, the moment when it turned, when suddenly we could uh, convince our producer and our <laughs> test viewers at, the, at that time to, to accept the length of the sequence. And it was the moment when we changed the shot where he's walking through the rubble it was in the beginning. It was after the, they put the injured person on the car, we had him walk away. And then he was in the graveyard, digging the grave and uh, so on. Um, but we always got a lot of criticism for this sequence. So we tried to do a lot of changes and shorten here and shorten there and so on. But the big change came when we put this walking scene in the end of it. And today I know that it is, uh, that it symbolizes something different. It has a different meaning, the, the walking. When we put it after he confesses that he's uh, depressed, after he tells his sister on the phone that his best friend is dead, then when he walks, it, it's already, he's already starting a new action. He's already on his path to some new experience. So he has overcome, uh, let's say, his de depression. And that's when, 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 we, when we had the feeling that, okay, now, now we're almost there. Now we can, uh, now we made it work, this scene. And by the way, I'm, I'm very much in favor of not killing your darlings, but of working a lot until you make them work and keeping your darlings. <laughs> I think uh, the, the, the important thing is uh, not only uh, to always consider the, the emotional response of the, of the audience and your own emotional response, but also try to engage your audience uh, on a thinking task. Always be aware that your audience need to have things going on in their mind. They, you need to feed them with the information and the right amount of information at the right time. 
And that's not always easy. That's why we uh, know dramaturgy, why we like working in fiction. Most of us do. We, we change from fiction to documentary and back again. I do, at least, and I enjoy it. Um, it's, it's always good to, 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 to get your inspiration also from dramaturgy. Of course, dramaturgy in documentary is not something that is a, a given rule and that you can fit uh, into any footage or you can put, fit the footage into the rules of dramaturgy. That doesn't always work, but it's always good to have it, to keep it on your mind, to know about it and to keep it on your mind. That's, uh, that's important. And because this is the, the way how uh, to, to keep, or how to take your audience on, a, on an intellectual and emotional trip. This is how you will move your audience. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's at least the way that I try to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, well, now we have, we've heard about so many different considerations and angles and, and access points for an audience. And now we're going to realize how all of these things, in some ways, have to be rethought <laughs> and resolved uh, when it comes to uh, VR. So now we'll hear from Sarah Colster, uh, who will do a uh, presentation of PowerPoint images uh, about uh, working on a VR project. Yeah, so I'm a, in, a, in a, a little different. I'm not an editor, but I'm an interactive uh, designer and um, specialized in, and director specialized in digital storytelling. So uh, I work uh, on my own projects, but also work together with photographers, filmmakers in making uh, interactive uh, documentaries, mostly documentaries. And sometimes they take place in the virtual space such as uh, Out of Sight, you see here. Uh, last year, year, Drawing Room was uh, shown here at DocLab. Uh, but I will go a little bit more in depth into um, the process of Out of Sight, to dive into that beast, to use the same metaphor as is used before. Um, and in general, I mean, editing is different uh, when you talk about interactive content or interactive stories. And in every interactive project, there is a different type of editing because um, there's no real format in which it is presented. When it's presented in a browser, there's still the interface, which can be completely different for each project, will define also the way how you cut scenes together or montage uh, in the interactive project. And in virtual reality, uh, it's the same. I mean, you have a headset, uh, but there is no interface at all. So how do you cut from scene to scene? Or how do you uh, go from one world into the other, to use the term they use in, in virtual reality? Um, first, I will show you a little clip about Out of Sight, so you know a little where I'm talking about. Our sound. It's a broad virtual reality which takes you to the world of a nine year old Lena and her father. 
Hi, Lena. Did you have a nice day? Lena lost her sister, Lisa, and her father lost his daughter. So this is Lena, the, the main character, the daughter in the story, and uh, her father, Leonard. So we see that they're healthy and kind of pretty people, but there's also something wrong. And that was, for me, my biggest challenge to, to put that into the characters. So as a viewer, you are actually in the head of one of the characters. You're either Lena or her father, and you experience um, their perspective. Lena kind of created her own world on the table in front of her. She's diving into this owl palette, and she's taking it apart. And on a more metaphorical level, she's dealing with uh, the themes of life and death, as her father is at the same time. Um, but he is much more in his own head, he's into his own memories. Well, the difficult part in telling an interactive story where you're in somebody else's head um, is letting the people figure out where they are um, without making them lose focus on what the story is actually about. When I was writing the script, I had to anticipate and think that I had to be filled in, like, like music and uh, imagination and uh, uh, things that you see with your VR glasses and how you anticipate on the things that, that really happen. The problems that you run into when you make sound design for a movie like Out of Sight are that you have to give uh, some sort of solution for the sound of thoughts. Thoughts are in your head, so there's no room. So you take away all the room. You make it very dry. That's the sound of thoughts. The moment that you take off the headset is a great moment, I think, because uh, you'll see the other person at the other side of the table exactly on the spot where the other character was. It's also a way to connect to the other character and take something from the other side of the story because you, you can talk to each other afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, so uh, just to wrap up, uh, Out of Sight is about you kind of dive into the head of one of the characters and you, as the viewers, it's taking place on a table, so you sit opposite of each other. So one person is the nine-year-old Lena, and the other person is the father. And after the experience takes more or less six minutes, and afterwards you switch perspectives. And by switching the perspectives, you actually get the whole story. Because, of course, Lena experiences the loss of her sister in a completely different way than her father did. Um, and the idea of Out of Sight came from my own experience as as a five-year-old, I also lost my sister, so I know from the inside what it is to that there's that that the experience then was so big, like the event was so big, it was almost too big to to handle at that moment or to grasp. And um, but what I did know that the experience of a child is uh, completely different than from an adult. 
And that was the way when I was uh, started to think of, ah, maybe virtual reality could be a way to kind of let the viewer experience that. Uh, and that was the way, that was actually the reason why we uh, chose virtual reality. So how could you be one, one of those characters? Um, most of the time, like, I mean, it's still like very technical, right? You have those, you have the headset on, but what we try to do is actually make some kind of physical insulation out of it, where you see in a very abstract way, you see kind of the outlines of the environment, which you also see when you put on your headset, which would make, in our idea, in our heads, the transition to the virtual space uh, less difficult. And also because there is, on the several levels, there are different encounters. Here you have an encounter of two possible strangers, which when they do the headsets on, they're actually uh, father and daughter. And then when they take the headset off again, they are again, you know, those complete strangers. But because of the experience, they have a common ground, something that they experienced uh, to talk uh, to each other. And you see two very young. Yeah, it's funny because here you see that children, they, 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 they respond completely different when having the headsets on because like adults are so used to kind of watch, yeah, watch a movie like straight. So like whether they have the headset on or not, they kind of forget about the other like 180 degrees. So, uh, but children, they are very natural. They're kind of like go under the table. They kind of, you know, like they're sitting in a completely different uh, uh, way. Um, they're much more uh, flexible. So it sounds very complicated, but actually it's not so complicated. When we make it more abstract, you have two persons, Lena and her father, and we have a, and we, and we have a table. Uh, when you would, so this is in Dutch, uh, the father is on top, the daughter is below, and when you draw the world around it, that's what it looks like. And in, in VR, we don't, uh, we, most of the time, you're not thinking in squares, you're always thinking in circles. So that's a big difference. Um, so the world of VR is indeed round, and in juxtaposition to the screen or a frame in a film, um, it's good to realize when thinking of editing or storyboarding that you think in circles. Um, and everything is defined in relation to the viewer. So not in relation to the, sh to the frame, but in relation to the viewer. Because of course the viewer can watch, can like basically choose where to look and that's where something needs to happen or not, or you have to, uh, um, yeah. So that it's, it's a completely different way of when you think of editing that you think, not think of scenes or frames next to each other. You think of uh, a certain uh, position within the 360 degrees where something has to take place. And from there you go further. I will explain in a second. So what you see here, the father, uh, is basically what you called, um, so 
see. Oh yeah, here you see which part of the world you see as a viewer when you're wearing the headset. So here you see from the father the kind of when when you look straight, it's basically the, 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 the first lines you see when you can move a little bit with your head, you see a little bit more. And when you twist your head completely, that's the kind of maximum field of view you have. So here you see. So you have the forward field of view, these uh, 94%. And then when you twist a little bit with your head, it's the 154 degrees and maximum field of view with complete head turn is 204 degrees. So you have a, a, a very big realm like uh, to work with. But it's not only like the angle where you look, uh, which is important. It's also where the distance uh, from the viewer in relation to an object, which is important to take into account. So you have the minimum amount of view is like half a meter, uh, which means that like there's you, you, you see comfortably without looking cross-eyed when you have this, these glasses on. And the strong um, field of distance is like 10 meters, and then the limit is 20 meters. So within these parameters, things can take place. And so when you combine those two, you see like the, the the probable areas of interest where a viewer can look are there where it's the most red. So it's basically like within the 94 degrees and then within 10 meters from the viewer in a space. So how do you translate something like that into a storyboard? Because you cannot think in squares, right? So here, uh, there's a guy, Vincent McCurley. I mean, we're still experimenting, so everyone can make up their own way of dealing with that. I mean, I, can, I will show you later how we did with it, how we de uh, dealt with it later. Uh, so this, he, he kind of came up with this storyboard where you have like round circles, and if you combine that, it's not about pretty drawings, but it's just about like how to uh, communicate to the programmers or the animators or the director or the producer like where things need to take place in relation to the viewer where you stand. And now I talk about like where you cannot walk. Huh? So that's, this is a, 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 a room, like a, a seated experience. Because if you will walk around, you have, of course, you take the circle with you and then you have uh, an area within you, where, where within you can walk. So how did we do that? Um, it was a combination of tools. We used uh, a 3D world uh, building Unity and a flat storyboard like, like this and this and an animatic so of which you see here a few drawings. And here you see right uh, left, you see the uh, the point of view of the father, and on the and at the same time in the you know like you have simultaneous events, you see the point of view of the daughter, what she's doing in the movie. Here you see the point of view of the father and the point of view of the daughter. So. Um, Jessica Broad from uh, Google VR, she 
made it clear, like this is basically like a very abstract, like how you cut from scene to scene in a linear movie um, in the film world. And this is how worlds are juxtaposed. Like basically they are laying uh, next to or like uh, around each other, basically. So you have a world and from that world you go to another world. You, so you start basically in the red circle and if you want to go to the green circle, you will be somewhere in the red circle and that's where this, the end point of that world is and the, the, the starting of a new scene or the new world will be in the next phase. So that's when you make that. Here you see, for instance, like uh, you move from in the red circle, you see that the, the, two, the two kind of the end and the starting point are lined up to each other. And how to do that is um, you have to make sure that in order for the viewer to end the scene from a certain, like for instance, where you see the blue ball there, if I can show you, like the white blue ball, uh, ball there, if you want a scene to start a scene there, you make sure that in the green circle, you have to be, you have to move your head somewhere in that direction. So, and how to, that, how to do that, you can use clues like sound or uh, light or like any, any uh, like uh, uh, clue you use in normal editing as well. Um, this is a little film that shows like how to, how the edit, like how to move from one world to another. And that's called like the hero journey, that's what they call it. <laughs> it's a small animation, you can watch it forever. Just to uh, give an overview of uh, the, 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 the beast where we worked with like making out of sight. So we had a storyboard, which was pretty normal because I found it very hard. You saw already the images they, I could find uh, like to, to kind of visualize it in, 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 a, in a three d dimensional space limits also the way how you can draw or uh, uh, like um, illustrate it. So I use the same like the, a, a flat storyboard to do that. We had of course a script, which is basically like a normal <coughs> script. That of course we had two characters. So <coughs> we had two scripts of which the dialogue is exactly the same, but the internal monologue is different. And those timelines had to be uh, lined up to each other. We use an animatic which we made a rough animated version of. So we made two animatics, one for the father, one for the daughter. Of course, we had the characters, which were uh, first um, filmed towards a green screen, then modeled, and then animated. And Gijs uh, Kast, he's an illustrator, so we used like two-dimensional drawings and they were mapped onto the characters. We had to build an environment which 
is, so we, we basically you start from scratch. You start, start from an empty world in our case. I mean, if you work with uh, photographic images, it's different. And the only thing we knew that there, was, there were two characters, the father and the daughter and a table, but in what kind of environment they would be. So we had to come up with not only the room or kind of the setting they were in, but also like what would you see through the window. So there was this whole kind of almost architectural uh, um, exercise in building this, building this space and building the world which you could see from that space. And then of course what happens with the characters because they stay in the room, but they, they kind of experience this kind of dreamlike experience, which also had to be, yeah, kind of imagined what that would be, which was interesting. Then of course we had the music, the sounds, uh, music and the sounds, and uh, the dialogues, so the voice actors. And we had to deal what uh, uh, we had to deal with, like um, this. Um, you had the dialogue, so you have the you have the the headset on your head, but um, you basically you get lags and you get arms when you're sitting on this table, but you also get a voice, which is of course very strange because it's not your own voice, and you get hands, which are not your own hands. So you are on this table and you see, suddenly you see hands and you see legs. Okay, the legs are kind of, okay, you don't do anything with it. But the hands, immediately like you see viewers when they do the headset on, they position their hands in the exact same place as where they are on the table of the characters, which is kind of funny. But then you have the, the, the dialogue which is taking place and you have the, the internal monologue, like kind of the thoughts. So like how do you make a difference between when you're speaking, which you're not because obviously you're just viewing, but you're experiencing it, and you have internal thoughts. So we kind of had to test a lot of the difference between those two, like if viewers would actually um, realize that they were, when they were thinking and when they were talking to the father opposite, which was a very interesting uh, test. And uh, oh yeah, and of course there's the the physical installation, which we build. Okay, I guess I come to the end of my beast. Uh, so I used a few sources just to give some kind of very 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 big like kind of like how like the montage can go from one world into another. And it's very from my personal experience making out of sight and making drawing room, which are of course completely different experiences when you would make a 360 degree, uh, or when you deal with 360 degree footage, or when you have to stitch it later, like that's, that, that's uh, an expertise I don't have. Um, and still it's like, it's experimentation, right? Like everyone is still, I'm not an expert, I'm just making very nice things, I think. But it's not <laughs> like, I mean, it's just kind of experimental, uh, experimenting with virtual reality. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, more people should join or try it, it's really nice. Thank you so much.
now we'll move to the uh, question and answer section. So I, I hope you have lots of things to, to ask about and talk about. Um, just one thing at the beginning, if you could wait for a microphone to be brought to you uh, be before you start talking um, so everyone can hear. Uh, so maybe we'll just, I guess people are kind of but, uh, Anyone have any questions? You could raise your hand up high. Is it? Hello? I have a question for Sarah. Um, can you explain perhaps the difference between working with animation in VR versus working with real footage? Yeah. How is that different or, because I've had that experience and it seems that animation seems to be a much more, I don't know, immersive experience. Well, um, as I already said, I don't have the experience working with 360 video, but most of the experiences that I've seen make uh, using 360 material that it's still, mm, we know the experience of being in a panoramic kind of sphere. Um, and with, um, and then like, I don't like, if I find it difficult to explain the difference, like, because I haven't had, I don't have the experience working with the, the photograph, like the live action material. Uh, with animation, it's basically you have you have basically, you have this empty room, you know, you have this empty space which you have to fill in with objects which you decide where they will be. Like if you shoot material, you'd have to deal with, you have to think of that beforehand and you deal with the set design which is a set in a space which you cannot uh, alter anymore. In animation, you can still, basically the editing and the montage takes place within the pro program where everything uh, gets a position in space and uh, a time and a place and a motion. So I think, yeah, basically, yeah. The, uh, so I think that's that's the difference. Thank you very much. I'd like to ask. Uh, um, Claudio, Per, and Anna, um, what do you think will happen with the editing, with the experience of the VR? Um, you know, more and more kind of we'll call it digital storytelling projects being around. Do you think that will impact your work as editors? Do you think you'll be thinking differently about editing in any way? I mean, I was just uh, watching your faces with kind of mix of curiosity and disbelief as you were. <laughs> <laughs> at the presentation, so I would be very uh, interested in hearing your comments. Well, you. I'm, I'm, is it working? Yeah. I, I would love to work with you. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would love to research and to uh, try to find ways. I wonder why, well, I'm instead of answering and asking <laughs> questions, <laughs> I wonder uh, why did you, what made you put the thoughts that what, what, why did you feel the need of putting the thoughts of the character into, yes, in, into, into the, into the story? Because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's something we don't do. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
the thoughts, the, the feelings, talking in films, unless there is, well, there are possibilities, but you understand? Why yeah, 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 I why, understand. Why wasn't it enough for us to feel the experience without the thoughts? Why do you need them? Oh, yes. Um, I felt we, because only the, the what I wanted to make um, clear or visual or uh, that when we are, like basic idea, when we are communica communicating, we think we kind of understand each other, but at the same time, there's so much more going on, which is, which like I only grasp maybe half of what, what, what you are saying, huh? do you understand? So what I wanted to do is that, because it's a very sparse dialogue, which is taking place about like kind of very daily things, it's not a, um, I wanted to, like the responses of uh, which you have, uh, which, which for instance Lena has opposed to her dad, um, you feel, you get immediately like, oh, okay, there's something going on. She's not directly uh, saying that in dialogue to him, but only in her thoughts. She's thinking like, oh, wow, he doesn't, like, he, I already asked that three times, so why, why, why aren't you responding, you know, like something like that. So, I, and those kind of small sentences, which are more, and then that she goes more and more into her fantasy, which takes place, which needs words as well. Um, that's that's why I wanted to fill in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, we can go on talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, often we put we we work in this way uh, that we we leave these empty spaces, and that's where the emotion can can uh, appear, mm -hmm. you know? But in this, in, like, in Out of Sight, I think the thoughts are part of the story. Yes, I should, yeah. I should, uh, do you have the, the installation here? No, no, it's not shown here then. So you have to make an appointment. <laughs> 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 it's the, that's the, that's the down part about VR. You need this kind of, you know, like giant computer and then this kind of big thing in order for people to, sh to see it, you know? It's not like giving like this USB stick and say, okay, it's still in this kind of very preliminary state. Yeah. Yes, but coming back to the okay. question. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, uh, uh, well, as I, I, I refer to the early days of cinema, you know, the impact that it, the moving images had at that time, and that I'm still like reacting physically to, to gravity or to your work, it will probably always stay the same. And it's what we try to achieve by editing. You know, it's like what we are trying to do. And if it is, if you did it with the, with the uncut uh, uh, shot um, of the Lumiere brothers, or if uh, you, you do it by in animation, it's uh, just uh, trying to make the audience react uh, and uh, empathize with the characters or with the situation, and this will always stay the same. I want to add to the question that, that I really like the project, and I really love the idea of 
going into the mind of point of view of another person. That's really, really interesting. And stay there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess me as an editor, I'm not sure I can see myself doing that, but I could see me on another level going into have the dialogue about the script and how to construct it. Mm -hmm. On that level, I think it could be useful to have guys like us three Definitely. helping you. It's very analytical and it's yeah. very about like the helicopter view, mm. you know, like you exactly. have all this material. All those possibilities. And, and, and even more <laughs> parameters mm -hmm. on the table, which you need to decide what, yeah. what because <coughs> the most important thing, and that's kind of the, the lesson I learned, I mean, VR, I'm still very new, a newbie. It's the second one I make, but I made a, a, a lot of interactive documentaries. And the fault which everyone makes is to give the choice to the viewer. And it's not about choice. No. It's about guiding. And you have to have yeah. the story is the, is the underlying grid of any documentary, whether it's interactive or not. So that's, I think, the very important thing to keep in your head that the, the viewer needs to be guided. It's not, it's, about, it's not about giving them, okay, oh, here you have some fragments, do, what it, do whatever you like with it, you know? I mean, if that's what you want as a director, that's a different, that's mm -hmm. a different mm -hmm. thing, you know? But in order to get a story or an emotion or something across, you need to have that um, yeah, train of thoughts, this kind of journey you think the viewer will go yeah, through. Yeah, and, and we, of course, very skilled in, in, in making stories, yeah. so storytelling, so yeah. it will be obvious to, to, to yeah. collaborate <coughs> about it. Definitely. Yeah. My question is for Claudio, uh, the editor for Familia Third. Thank you. And uh, it's about um, how does the relationship changes when uh, when uh, it's a very personal film and when the director is so close to his subject. So how does uh, the relationship between the editor and director changes in that case? when the director is also a character? <laughs> <laughs> that says enough. <laughs> how many hours do you have? <laughs> well, uh, for any film it has to be personal. That's for a start. Even if the director is not a character, it has to be personal. It has, he has to find a personal link to it. It's important, and we have to to decode that. We have to understand the, what's the link, because he's not, uh, often not able to express it, or doesn't want to assume it. And in the case of uh, the director being also the character, that's all the time in the room. Uh, I mean. I know more than him why he wants to make this film and film himself. There, there is uh, that going on because it's uh, often uh, very, um, what do you say? It's, um, it's not easy for the director to, to understand why I mean, I worked in, in several films that the director was an actor because he was part of the family that was being filmed. So you can imagine the, the emotional things involved. There are a lot. 
So um, I don't know how to answer to you. I, I don't think I work very differently, but but in that case, it's I certainly don't say everything I think. <laughs> yes, or I think twice and I try to find the right words because it's very personal. It can be very fragile. Yeah, not not because I hide things, but because I respect that I'm not this person, so I have to be careful. It's sensitive, right? And it's always sensitive with the director because if he is involved personally, like I was saying, it's always sensitive. You cannot always talk just like you would be talking to anyone, right? You have to be a little careful. Ah, is this the right moment to bring up that issue? <laughs> so if he's part of the, of the film itself, it doubles that, that thing. So I answer your question. I have a little anecdote from, from my editing life about that. Uh, I made one fil two films with a director. The first one was a very personal film where he was in all the image and have a VO. The next film, there was only one room. He, he should not be in any image at all in the film. And the one week later, we needed to, to put him in the film because he has only shot himself. So it's, it's like sometimes directors have ideas, but in the real life, it's, it's not the same. I, th I think Anne mentioned um, that she works on fiction and non-fiction. I imagine you all work on non-fiction and fiction. I'm curious to know what are the similarities and what are the differences? What, what can you take from fiction projects that you can use in non-fiction in terms of approaches and techniques? Well, what we mostly take, I think, is uh, working uh, uh, on dramaturgy because the dramaturgy in the fiction film is already set when we receive the footage. In the documentary, there's no dramaturgy there. I've never worked on a documentary where there was a dramaturgical outline before we started editing. So, uh, but still, each of the fiction films that I worked on needed additional dramaturgical work in the editing. So that's how we get very, uh, very close to dramaturgical work and we are very much aware of how little changes can influence things a lot. We are very much aware of the construction of a script, the dramaturgical structure that is there when working on fiction. And of course, working a lot on fiction, you sometimes get tired of this dramaturgy. If it's like, sometimes it happens that it's quite repetitive and then the next movie, you have similar, similar problems solved. So that's why it's very refreshing to go back to documentary and uh, work on documentary, bringing the experience from the fiction film back to the documentary. And then, again, after finishing one or two documentaries, go back to fiction and uh, apply what you 
uh, bring in from, from documentaries to, to the fiction uh, world. But also another thing that uh, came to my mind now when you uh, spoke about the personal thing, because fiction films also are very personal. Often you have the writer and he's uh, the director, uh, it's also the director, so it's a very personal thing that you work on. Also in fiction it can be like that, or even, even if you work on a TV series and uh, the director comes to the editing room and he has spent weeks uh, on the set with the, the, the real actors, and he comes to the editing room, and you as an editor, of course, you call all the characters by their fictional names, but he still keeps calling them by the actors' names. So I often experience that it needs a, a, a week or two until they, they stop calling them the, their real life names and uh, start uh, speaking about the characters, which is essential for our work, that we understand that they are characters. And even if I have a, a director in my documentary, I would uh, not say, oh, we need to cut you out, but I would say we need to cut X out, <laughs> the character's name. Yes, and, and also there is a double, uh, it's, it's, um, they are two different characters. It's the same person that played the role and that is the director, but they are different. I mean, they shouldn't have the same intentions. One is the character that is doing his stuff, and, that, and the director is not the same. He has a point of view that is not the same as the character. So it's, it's a little schizophrenic. Yes. <laughs> My experience is that changing from fiction to documentary, it, it shines through the work on the different films, that the, the different genre that, that, that you have been working on the documentary. I put documentary things in my fiction films as well. Mm. Uh, the way of being a little bit more loose on the structures and so on. But on the other way, I also like to, to have a quite, quite clear structure as mm. well in documentary. So it's, it's a little give and take. Yes, and it, it's not like uh, like there is nothing in documentary, no structure, no dramaturgy, no. because otherwise there would be no film, right? You just have to identify them. And I, I work mostly in documentaries, very little in fiction, but uh, I think my approach to, to documentaries is very much a fiction approach concerning the characters, concerning the dramaturgy. And when I, when I receive a fiction script, I have a documentary approach to that. And I say, ah, okay, this is what you wanted to tell. <laughs> we'll see, because uh, let's, <laughs> let's see what we have. We have to read. <laughs> and uh, one, one, one thing that is different that I love in fiction is uh, working with the actors. Because I feel I have a real active role. Because the palette is, is wider. Mm. Because you have the different takes and the things we, you get, the things you choose, the way you put the silences. You have a little wider uh, uh, palette than in documentary. So I love the feeling that I am playing with the actors. I am making them 
be good actors, let's say, or be uh, according to the moment and to the scene, to choose with them what's the intention there. And that you have it much more in fiction than in documentary. It's really nice. I just want to add to, to the thing about scenes, uh, because finding the structure in the documentary, uh, there, it is there, of course it is there, and we need it to, to, to construct the documentary. And, and, and in documentary, it's, I think it's nine out of 10 documentaries, you changing scenes position, you reorder the structure to get it working. And in fiction, if you try to do that to a director that's only making fiction, he will cry out loud, because he's a failure, he thinks. And he said, why? It's just normal work of editing. Reorder things to get it work even better. Well, uh, <clears throat> I'm afraid that's all the time we, we have, but it's, it's tough because we've had such a terrific discussion, uh, but we have run to the end of our time. So thank you so much for a wonderful